And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, the much-promised talk about housing prices, coming right up. And hello there, welcome to Tuesday. You know, we get a lot of mail here at The the Bridge about a lot of different subjects, obviously, for the last <laughs> couple of years, it's mainly about being about COVID, but not exclusively. And one of the, the big secondary issues has always been housing and housing prices, especially and especially for those people just trying to get into the housing market, the house purchasing market. Um, we had another one of those letters last week. Well, in fact, we had quite a few letters last week, but the one I, I read last Thursday from uh, Josh Lemire um, kind of struck a chord uh, with a lot of people because there were a lot of follow-up letters, and it's this whole issue of, you know, for young people who have jobs and yet are so far out of any reasonable thought of purchasing a house in one of the major cities in the country that is just out of reach. And they're kind of resigning themselves to the fact that they will never own a house. And could I find some way to talk about that? So we talked about it a little bit on Good Talk last Friday with uh, Chantel and Bruce. Uh, But I want to reach out further uh, to talk about it today and as a result, where did I reach to? I reached to my old friend, Preet Banerjee, who uh, we've done a lot of programs together over the years on television and also here on the bridge. Uh, Preet is the uh, host of the podcast, Mostly Money. Uh, he's a personal financial advisor, consultant, expert. So his whole thing is about trying to help you understand your money, what you can do with your money, what you should do with your money. And he looks at the, you know, housing market. You can't help but look at the housing market. It's staring you right in the face, no matter who you are, and just how prepared you are to enter that market. So I called Preet up the other day and I said, help me on this <laughs> and he said of course whenever you want so here's our conversation with Preet Banerjee so Preet I'm not even sure where to start on this story but uh, let's try this if you're if you're uh, someone in Canada who's living in a you know a, a relatively major city and you don't already own a house what are the odds that you ever will own a house? That's a great question. I think the odds are directly tied to whether or not you have parents who are willing to help you out. And I think this speaks to why this has become uh, a huge crisis. It is creating this generational divide and it's been growing for a long time, but it's getting bigger and bigger. And to give you an example of why I say it's tied to whether or not your parents are going to help you, whether or not you have a big, uh, what's called BOMAD, the bank of mom and dad. So there is a report out by, I think it was CIBC 
that looked at the average size of a gift for a down payment from parents. And so this is a conditional average. So this, what that means is it's if you received a gift, the average size of that gift across Canada was $82,000 in order to assist their kids in buying a home. Now, the Toronto average, if you want, because obviously there are certain cities where pricing of houses is quite a bit different than other cities. The average gift for a first time buyer in Toronto from their parents was $130,000 and in Vancouver is $180,000. So the next question is, how many people are getting these gifts? It's about three in 10. So 30% of first time home buyers are getting this, these gifts, which means 70% of people who are not getting gifts likely have an income that is incredibly higher than the average. And what that means is that there is an entire generation of people who are completely frozen out of even the thought of home ownership. There was a, a survey of Generation Z, uh, 18 to 28 year olds from Sotheby's Realty, and a full 50% of them said, housing just isn't in the cards for my life. There is no way that I will be able to buy a house in major cities in Canada. That's how big of a problem it is. How did we get to this point? I mean, I, you know, I hate to draw on my life because when I was a young person, it was a long time ago, but let's say 50 years ago. And, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I would have been considered at that point in the, at least in a lower middle class, I was making like twenty twenty five thousand dollars um, at best a year, and uh, to consider buying a house at that time, you were looking at something that was two or maybe three times more than your annual income. Today, someone in my situation in today's world is looking at something that's twenty or thirty times their annual income. How how did we get to this? It's been a long time coming. We're talking, you know, multiple decades of seeing certain trends evolve. So certainly one of the big ones has been interest rates, a progressively falling interest rate environment, even if your income didn't change, allows you to borrow more money. So that certainly has been one factor. And we're now at, you know, interest rate levels that are you never would have even imagined, you know, 20 years ago. So interest rates being low, that certainly fueled it. Uh, I think another one big factor is the what's called the financialization of housing. And that's partly due to the fact that, you know, housing has done so well for you know many generations, coupled with the decrease in interest rates and People have seen that they've created a lot of wealth. Many generations have done really well. And so there's a huge stigma from older generations to current generations saying you are not an adult until you buy a home. There's a lot of pressure from society that tells you you are not an adult until you are a homeowner. So there's a huge amount of pressure and that drives people to maybe stretch themselves. So people are spending more of their income to even service these, these mortgages. But to your point, you know, if you ask uh, a number of homeowners today that have owned for 20 plus years and you ask them, could you afford the house to buy the house that you live in today? And the answer is most likely going to be no. And that is an effect of these, these long-term trends. So to give you an example of how long it takes to save up a down payment. So let's assume you don't have any assistance. It now takes on average Canada wide to buy a non-condo home, nine years of saving. But that's Canada wide. If you look in the most populous areas like Toronto, Vancouver, 28 years 
for the median household income to save up enough to pay for the down payment to get their first home. And in Vancouver, it's 36 years. So if these trends continue, where income really hasn't seen a huge amount of growth, but we've seen house prices continue to absolutely explode, we're getting to a point where it will be mathematically impossible for someone to save up for the down payment to buy their first house in their natural lifetime. And so something has to happen at some point because this mathematically, I don't think society would stand for that. Is there, is there evidence of a tension between the generations over this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's whole advocacy groups that are set up that, that talk about the tension between basically the homeowner class and older generations and the next generation. Uh, so there's one group out of, uh, uh, the West Coast called Generation Squeeze that just focuses on this and they've got great statistics. I highly recommend people check them out. But there is this huge tension and it's creating guilt on a number of different fronts. So, for example, let's say you are a parent, but you don't have significant savings and you just scrape by to get into a house yourself or maybe you are a, a renter. You can't help your your kids and there's a certain amount of guilt with that. If you are someone who has bought their first home in the last couple of years, you're hearing more and more stories of people who are guilty and they're almost hiding the fact that they were able to buy a house because compared to people in their friend circles and the angst that they have about bidding war after bidding war, drive until they, outside of the city, until they can qualify for places that they could actually buy. It is a huge generational issue. And so if you look at, Generation Y, millennials, they're kind of on the fence. Do I or don't I? And again, Generation Z, they're like, forget it. It's just never going to happen. For those who's, who've made that decision, it's never going to happen. Um, they're obviously renters. Um, what, what is the value in renting other than you're able to do it? One assumes, <laughs> uh, but even in some places, in well, say downtown Toronto, that uh, even that's not an option for a lot of young people because the rents are like, astronomical. Um, but what's the upside of renting? So there can be upside. It probably requires as much discipline as home ownership. And when I say that, you know, buying a home requires a big mortgage payment. You've got to pay property taxes, maintenance, and so on and so forth. And it requires a lot of financial discipline, as anyone who has bought a home in the last little while will tell you, because it's a very big cost to be able to afford a home. To be a renter that thrives also requires a lot of discipline. Because what can happen is if you're just resigned to the fact that, well, there's no way I can own, so I'm just going to be a renter, then if you are not also saving money diligently, you have no sort of forced savings. So one of the arguments with home ownership is, you know, there's a forced savings component. You're paying off this big loan over time. So part of your mortgage payment goes to paying down the principal and some of it goes to paying interest. And a lot of renters have been convinced, again, there's this stigma that, you know, why you're paying your landlord's mortgage, why not not get your own? But they can't. They can't get into the home ownership ladder. So what do they do? So it is possible to to prosper as a renter for a couple of things. One, if you think, take a look at the mental health aspect, we are now starting to see more and more people 
who have climate anxiety and the idea of owning uh, a property in a place where there are more climate events that causes anxiety maintenance they don't necessarily have to worry about to the same degree in terms of these big lump sum costs that can happen at a, at a time you know replacing or fixing a roof or fixing a foundation or whatever if you don't have the discipline to save up and budget for the maintenance required for home ownership as a renter you might say well that's one less worry but at the same time again if you are not saving some money and putting that money aside even though you're a renter and listen i've been a renter for the last nine years and i've done well financially because i've been able to set money aside as well to invest in other assets in the stock market but as we see more and more sort of investors enter the market and they become a bigger, bigger share of people who are buying properties, this increased financialization of housing basically means that renters, whereas before you might have been able to find, you know, a, a big difference between what you could rent a property for and what the cost would be to carry it in terms of ownership and that difference you could, in theory, put away and save into the market. Well, now we're starting to see some real pressure on rents because there is no alternative. There are more and more people in the investor uh, real estate class. And if they continue to buy more and more of a share of new builds that come onto the market, they have the power to increase rents because you've got nowhere else to go. And to take this you know, further to see where this could go, uh, the city of Berlin had a referendum last year. Now, 80% of Berliners are renters. And there has been a huge financialization there where corporate landlords, private equity firms have bought hundreds of thousands of apartments. And, you know, a single landlord could be in charge of, you know, 50,000 units. So for there, this is kind of what, you know, cities in, in Canada could look to to the future to see, well, what could happen if we don't do something about it? They had a referendum at the end of 2021 where they asked the city to buy out 250,000 apartments from these corporate landlords to, to basically seize them so that they could offer lower rents to people because that's how bad the financialization has become. So, yeah, it's a huge issue. Are we heading in, in that direction in terms of, uh, of the kind of buildings that are being built? They're being built for rent. And I ask that because... Um, even if you don't live in Toronto, you've probably heard of Honest Ed's, the, the big store that was in uh, downtown Toronto. It was very popular for a number of different reasons, but it, it occupied a great block of real estate. Um, when uh, when Ed died a few years ago, they ended up selling off the building, the family, and selling off that whole block. And there's a huge um, condo development going in there, or, or they're not condos, they're apartments because they're just for rent. They're not going to sell them. Now, they're, a lot of them are small. That's the other thing we haven't talked about. I mean, they're like really small. Three bedroom <laughs> places in, you know, in under a thousand square feet. Um, you know, 800 square feet is starting to sound like Hong Kong in a, in a way in terms of, of that. But is this move to building huge new buildings with no intention of selling them as condos, but uh, putting them on the market as rentals. Yeah, and this, again, I think speaks to the demand of buyers, which again are becoming more and more investor buyers. And so there's a development just next door to where I live. And I signed up uh, as just for doing research to see, all right, show me the floor plans, the pricing and whatnot. 
and they had studio condos starting at, it was 286 square feet. And there's more and more developments in Toronto where you're seeing studio condos being offered that are under 300 square feet. This is nothing, right? This is, you could put a dining room table in there and maybe you have, you know, space for like one pot. You've got one fork, one knife. I mean, this is, this is what you see when you see those on YouTube. You can go and see tours of people's apartments in Tokyo where you open the door and you take one step in and you can basically touch every wall (laughs) from one spot. And so this is not designed for families. This is designed for investors who want to buy these, who can then rent it out uh, because people have no other the choice if they want to live in those those parts of the city. So this, again, speaks to the, the financialization of housing. And it's become such a big part of the economy. When you think about, you know, if the average uh, home price is, you know, a million bucks, to sell that, the realtor commission is 5%. And just as, as a point, uh, you know, realtor commissions are negotiable in case people didn't realize that. <laughs> so it doesn't always have to be 5%. It can be lower. But a 5% realtor commission to sell a million dollar home is 50,000 bucks. You add HST to that, it's 56,500 bucks. This industry of real estate transactions is so big that it's actually, believe it or not, it's estimated that in Toronto, one out of every 88 adults in Toronto is a realtor. <laughs> Right. And now not every one of them is doing a lot of deals, but you don't even need to. You do one one or two deals a year and you're fine. Some people just do it in case family wants to buy homes and they just want to make some extra money. That's how the financialization of housing has had such a huge impact. And the knock on effect of this is because this is a bigger and bigger part of the economy, um, ownership transfer costs, which are realtor commissions, land transfer taxes, historically are about one percent of GDP. It's now 3% of GDP. So the challenge is if you do any, if you enact any policy that is bold enough to actually see movement on affordability in the near term, you destabilize the economy. So it's politically unfavorable because the majority of constituents are homeowners to even think about enacting something that would actually address the problem in the short term. Well, let's talk politics for a moment because it, usually when these kind of crunch issues come down um, the demand is for politicians to come up with solutions and uh, and find ways that um, you know the average person is going to be able to buy a house now i've heard and i know you've heard uh, the theory that this is not really up front on uh, the desk of a lot of politicians because a lot of politicians own their own homes they're not of that age group where they got to worry about this, but that must be changing too. Right. Yeah. It has to change mathematically over time because as there are fewer and fewer uh, people who are homeowners and people who would want to get into politics <laughs> because they're passionate about an issue, this is going to be one of those issues. It's just not there yet. I don't know what the stats are, but if you told me that across all levels of government, you know, federal, provincial, municipal, the percentage of politicians who are homeowners was 95%, I wouldn't bat an eye. I, I would believe that. Until you get more and more people who are at the table and have been renters, and as that percentage of the population grows, I think that's when you get the political will to actually enact some policies. And in the meantime, what I think 
everyone is secretly kind of hoping, but also not, is that there's some great recession that resets the table. But that's going to be painful, too. It doesn't seem like there's any good way out of this this crisis for Canadians in the short term. Well, ever since house prices have have gone up dramatically over these last, whatever it is, 20, 25 years, we keep hearing, oh, there's a bubble. There's a bubble coming. It's going to pop and everything's going to go down. And occasionally... There is a, you know, a, a flattening of the house market or it drops maybe five or 10%, but then boom, it seems to like snap back up in the next, you know, fairly short period of time. So this sort of waiting for, you know, waiting for the reset, you know, I, of course, if I say there's never going to be a reset, maybe there will then <laughs> exactly be one very quickly. But do you think it's still there? There is still a possibility that that could happen, like a major reset in the housing market, or is there just too much at stake um, for, for any for, for it to be allowed to happen? Yeah, great question. Um, let's put it into context. If you had a 30% crash, that takes you back, what, a year and a half? (laughs) Uh, Right? So the level of devastation required in housing prices to create, you know, uh, affordable prices would have to be massive at this point. And for that to happen, the damage to the economy and people losing their jobs would basically mean that you might be in a position where you've lost your job. So even if prices come down to a point where you could afford it, at your current level of income, you might not have that job. So there's that factor. The second one is there's been so many people have, who have been successfully frozen out of home ownership that as prices come down, it feels like there's so many people who who would say, all right, well, now we can step back in. And that would cushion the blow because you have this almost, I wouldn't say endless supply, but there's just it feels like there's so many people who have given up recently that if prices came down, that would create kind of a floor on prices because they would step into the market and be interested in home ownership again. So I don't know if waiting for some kind of big crash is the way to think about, you know, home ownership versus renting in the near term. It's, it's market timing. I, I, We've been calling the market wrong in housing for 15 years now. And again, it's gotten so stretched that even, you know, a 30% again crash, it brings you back like 18 months. <laughs> All right. Last question. Um, this will be the toughest one of the lot. Uh, give me some reason if I'm that woman or that guy or that couple who is saying i'm never going to buy a house because i can never i'll never be in the position to buy one give them uh, some reason to hope that actually you know maybe you will be able to yeah look um it's possible that you know uh, the total share of the population that will ever be able to buy a house is going to i think that is the reality but there are still people who should continue to save uh, and build up funds in case an opportunity presents itself. And you never know what life is going to hand you. You know, maybe you're you're single, you're young, and you've got a good job, and you're able to set aside some money, and you don't think that that money is going to be used towards housing. You should still set aside money 
as part of your emergency fund, as part of your just general planning, makes good sense, buy, you know, investments, whatever. And if the opportunity presents itself, maybe it's a life change, uh, maybe you meet someone and, you know, maybe you move, you want to have kids or something like that. You want to at least be in the position so that if an opportunity does present itself, you are able to do that. Because it could be the case that there is some policy that gets enacted that allows for that to to occur. Again, I don't know if there's any one policy, there's probably no one policy that would reset prices. But they may, you may start to see more and more programs that are developed to help make it possible to get in on the home ownership ladder. So again, keep doing what you can in the meantime. I know it looks pretty disparate out there right now, and it is, it is bad. But keep doing what you can and hopefully, as there is more political will, as hopefully people present policies that can make sense in the short to medium term, maybe there will be something enacted to help you. And as for the long term, I don't know. If you told me that, you know, it is possible that, you know, house prices start to correct, something is done to address the sort of the investor component that puts a chill on access to credit. It is possible that you see a very severe downturn. I don't think it's you know something you would bank on in the next you know twelve months or whatever. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but I, I wish I could be more optimistic. But this is the reality. This is why it is a crisis. Preet, it's always good to talk to you. I really appreciate uh, having this discussion. Um, and you know, uh, we'll we'll see in which direction things things go. But it's uh, it's a tough one right now. But thank you. Thanks for having me, Peter. Preet Banerjee. And keep in mind, Preet, uh, who is a, both a management consultant and a uh, personal financial consultant and advisor, uh, Preet also has a very popular podcast, Mostly Money is what it's called. And um, you can listen to Preet's down-to-earth analysis of any number of different situations right there on Mostly Money. Um, I want you to know that I, you know, this was a, I think a, a really good overview of the, the housing pricing situation and a, especially how it affects young people, but we're going to keep an eye on this, um, as it continues to develop and look for other angles to discuss, uh, on it in the, um, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. So, uh, we're not just going to, um, uh, abandon the story cause it's, it's a good one. Um, okay, before we go today, you know how I like to throw in stuff that <laughs> that sometimes are kind of like a personal hobby horse for me. Yesterday, we had a couple of aviation stories. Well, today I've got something uh, to give you as well on another one of my kind of personal favorites. We'll do that right after this. Mansbridge back with you from Stratford, Ontario. This is The Bridge. You're listening on uh, Sirius XM Canada, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome from wherever you are listening. Well, as promised, before we go, something um, something a little extra on one of the, uh, the issues that I'd like to keep an eye on, and I know many of you do too because you're constantly writing about it. And that's EVs. 
electric vehicles. We've come a long way in a, in a year about talking about these because I used to start off calling them electronic vehicles, but I've, I've learned. EVs means electric vehicles. Well, a couple of stories. Every once in a while, I think at least once a week, we have something we can tell you on the uh, EV front, and we can do that again uh, on this day. And here is the story for this day. <laughs> I can just find where I put it. Here it is. Uh, it's out of the New York Times. And it, this is uh, this is a real indication of how we're moving ahead on this story, and not that slowly either. It's starting to move quickly. Um, this is a first. Sales of electric vehicles surpass diesel in Europe. So that's a first. And, and you know, Europe was big on diesel. I mean, they've taken a few hits in the last couple of years, as we know, diesel. Um, but for EVs to move ahead of diesel is significant. This is in Europe. More than 20% of new cars sold in Europe and Britain in December. So just last month, more than 20% were powered solely by electricity, according to data compiled by Matthias Schmidt in a strong illustration of the growing popularity of battery power. Sales of battery-powered cars soared in Europe, the United States, and China last year, while sales of conventional vehicles mm, kind of stagnated. Sales of all new cars in the European Union fell more than 20% in November as a shortage of semiconductors strangled production, according to the European Automobile Manufacturers Association. Now, as I mentioned, diesel was long popular in Europe because of tax policies that made diesel fuel less expensive than gasoline. This is all in this New York Times article, right? Diesel's decline began in 2015 after Volkswagen's emissions scandal, which called attention to the pollution caused by diesel. The subsequent regulations encouraged car makers to develop EVs. Okay, so that's one story on the electric vehicle front. Here's the other one. Now, a lot of those of you who write to me on the EV story, your two main concerns, you're interested, you're one of the growing number of people who are saying, you know, I may not buy another gas-powered vehicle. However, I want to be sure of two things. One, how long batteries are going to last. And two, where I can charge up my battery. How many charging stations are there going to be? Well, those increase every day, right? The numbers of those. But still, a lot of people worry about that. They worry about it for charging stations in their home. They worry about it for charging stations in big, you know, <laughs> big condo buildings, apartment buildings. Um and that's a concern. But the batteries, the battery issue is a big one because, you know, when EVs started, battery life was not long. It's longer now um, as they develop new batteries. 
Um, but it wasn't long, and people feared, well, I can't go anywhere. You know, I'm going to have to charge up every you know couple of blocks. Well, <laughs> it was never like that bad. Uh, but there was a limitation on how far you could drive without having to get recharged. So in this story in Wired magazine, the U.S. inches towards building EV batteries at home, in other words, in the States. And that's a big deal for the market in the U.S., because batteries are now in such high demand that the industry is headed for a materials supply cliff composed largely of nickel and cobalt. The battery was developed in a U.S. or a European lab, but its future is squarely in China, which today manufactures, get this, 90% of LFP battery cells. Battery production in the U.S. is a missed opportunity. This is according to Wired magazine, and they make a pretty compelling case. Called Libridge, a U.S. government initiative was formed a couple of months ago after the Biden administration set a goal of making 50% of new car sales electric. The administration has said the U.S. is putting too much stake in battery technology that could only come from overseas and particularly only come from China. The battery industry is growing and making partnerships with car companies. So the word is out there. We've got to get these batteries made in at home in America for Americans. So it's a huge potential industry for those who take advantage of it. And uh, some clearly are. Well, what are conventional car companies doing? Well, there are a lot of them are switching to electric vehicles as part of their package of vehicles that they're offering the public. We know that. But here's something else that's happening that's interesting. And this uh, this came out in uh, gizmodo.com. Toyota wants to make its cars last longer by refurbishing them. You know, we, we're all in this kind of habit of, well, not all of us, but many of us are in this habit of, you know, either trading in or ending our lease after two, three, at the most four years and getting something new. Well, are we, you know, they're making cars pretty well now, and they have been for some time. You know, I can remember the longest I ever had one car. Um, I bought new in 1979 a Toyota Supra. It's kind of like a Celica, but a sporty-looking one. It was very sporty. I had it for 10 years. I put a couple of hundred thousand clicks on it. Never had any major problems with it. But I had it for 10 years, and I think that's the longest I ever had a car. Now I'm kind of, you know, in a situation where it's every, you know, three years, four, kind of at the most. And I'm not sure why. (laughs) You know, I like a new car with all the latest technology. That's one. Well, that's what Toyota's saying they're going to do. There's nothing the matter with our cars. They need to be refurbished. They need to be kind of brought up to speed. 
And so they're talking about a program. This is just so far in the UK where they're going to refurbish vehicles, bring them back in, you know, once or twice over the life of the car to bring them up to date with everything from new technology to new materials in their, uh, you know, in the interior. So, you know, things are, things are changing in the automobile industry, which is such a huge part of the economy, especially here in North America, right? So that will be interesting to watch and see develop over time, whether other um, automobile companies do the same kind of thing. Say, okay, it's not a recall, but bring that vehicle back in. We're going to refurbish it. We're going to bring it up to date, bring it up to speed. looks great. looks like a great car. Let's just make it up to date. All right. Enough already. It's Tuesday, Wednesday, tomorrow, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Here's what we're thinking of talking about. And we've been prompted by watching what, to us, look like pretty strange decisions on the part of our major political parties, all of them, in terms of how they're using social media. Are we missing something or are they missing something? That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. Thursday is an opportunity for you to let us know what you're thinking on and whatever. Uh, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com is where you write. Friday is, of course, Good Talk, Chantelle Bear and Bruce Anderson on the events of the week in politics. And there's lots of them happening this week. All right, that's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening to The Bridge. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.